It's not just about a number on the scale, it's about how food makes you feel. It's about the energy that you have, it's about your ability to get good quality sleep at night, and all of those are impacted by the food choices you're making on a daily basis. Welcome to Wellness, your ultimate guide to unlocking your full human potential through biohacking. I'm your host, Ashley Daly. I'm a former personal trainer, Pilates instructor, and nutrition expert with a degree in kinesiology. I'm here to guide and support you in elevating the quality of your life. Can I ask you a favor? When you leave a review for me, it helps listeners like yourself find and access this information faster. So if you have five minutes, I would love if you could log on to Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave me a review. Today's guest is Michelle Sermons. Michelle is a registered functional medicine dietitian She completed her dietetic training at Cornell University and completed her Master of Science in Human Nutrition and Functional Medicine at the University of Western States. She has a background in personal training and is a board-certified specialist in sports dietetics. She currently works with Being Functional Nutrition as the Nutrition Community Manager and focuses on using personalized nutrition to get to the root cause of her clients' symptoms and conditions. Throughout her career, Michelle has guided hundreds of clients with numerous health conditions, including metabolic dysfunction, diabetes, gut dysbiosis, and autoimmune conditions. Michelle combines her expertise in functional medicine and fitness to help individuals use food as medicine to heal their bodies while also supporting an optimal metabolism. Michelle, welcome to the show. Hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. For listeners who are hearing about you for the first time, can you give us your background story and why you became a registered dietitian? Yeah, of course. You know, I got into this field because me, like many other individuals, grew up eating the standard American diet, which is really high in processed foods, super carbohydrate heavy. And I noticed that in my 20s, I was starting to experience a variety of different symptoms, things like weight gain, high stress, irritability, you know, low energy fatigue, just not feeling the best version of myself. And so I wanted to learn how I could take care of myself better to improve my longevity, my vitality. And then through that path, it led me to the world of dietetics. And I really got inspired, you know, with seeing the changes and how food impacted my lifestyle and how I felt that I wanted to teach other people that they don't have to feel this way, that they can feel vibrant and healthy and live a long life. And I think so many times we accept that symptoms are are things we just have to deal with on an ongoing basis, but there's such a connection between food and your lifestyle that impacts your everyday, everyday feelings that you have the ability to make change and be an advocate for your own health. I quite often notice that it's people's own experiences that lead them down a road to finding better health or a better solution. I imagine that came as quite a shock to you for being in your 20s feeling those symptoms. Absolutely. I definitely felt like I should have had more energy than I did at that time. But what I'm finding in practice is that a lot of individuals who are in their early 20s, in early 30s, are experiencing these symptoms already. Um, I work with a lot of parents as well, and they see some of these symptoms in their children. So I definitely think, you know, it's an epidemic where we're starting to lose the connection between how food 
impacts how we feel. We don't realize that we we know that. And it's something that if you're able to listen to what your body is trying to communicate to you, you're able to make changes in your lifestyle and just live a much more fulfilling life, symptom-free. I've heard that symptoms are your body's way of talking to you. Absolutely. We think so much of calories in, calories out, looking at the scale for weight loss and using that as a measurement of success. But those are not the only tools we looked at. In fact, sometimes those can actually be hard to overcome because it's not just about a number on the scale. It's about how food makes you feel. It's about the energy that you have. It's about your ability to get good quality sleep at night. And all of those are impacted by the food choices you're making on a daily basis. Let's jump into some of those food choices. And can we get started with what is blood glucose or blood sugar? Blood sugar is really focusing on sugar that's found in your bloodstream. And that's used as your primary source of energy to really fuel your body. So we all need steady levels of sugar in our bloodstream at all times of day that help support energy, daily functions. But complications occur when blood sugar levels become consistently too high. In fact, blood sugar imbalances are one of the largest drivers of chronic disease. Can you explain or give some examples of some of the worst foods to consume, which would drastically raise blood glucose? Our blood sugar rises anytime we consume a food that contains carbohydrates. So foods that contain carbohydrates are going to be things like your fruits, your vegetables, um, starchy, uh, starchy vegetables, processed foods as well will have a lot of carbohydrates. But it really comes down to how much carbohydrates you have coming into your diet and where those sources are coming from. So we want to have some carbohydrates coming in in the form of fruits, veggies, starchy vegetables, but processed food is really a huge driver of elevating our blood sugar. And that's because processed food contains a lot of added sugars. Um, that will cause the most dramatic rise. In fact, there are 61 different names for sugars that they use on the label. Um, so it can be really deceiving when you're looking at a label trying to identify how much sugar is in a product. There's a million different items on the, the ingredient label. So sugar comes in two forms. We have the natural occurring form of sugar, which is going to be you know what exists in nature, like in fruits, for example. And then we have added sugars that are coming from processed foods. So when you eat too much of any sugar in general, it can be problematic, but especially processed foods because they're very high in sugars. They also typically have a lot of added fat um, and other preserves added into them as well. So when someone consumes too much sugar, which in America, the average American eats about 17 teaspoons of sugar every day, and that is two to three times the recommended amount. Um, so when we have this overconsumption, it just drives our blood sugar up. And when your blood sugar is consistently high, it can lead to increasing inflammation. It can make, you know, cause changes in your sleep, in your energy, your mood. Um, it can start to disrupt your gut microbiome as well. And not just that, it affects metabolic imbalances too, like blood pressure, cholesterol, fatty liver disease. So blood sugar imbalances can really be at the root issue of why we're seeing so many other um, negative conditions that people are dealing with. There's so much to unpack there, especially with the food industry having 61 different names for sugar. So can you tell us what some of the worst offenders are? 
I think protein bars are a pretty good example because there's a lot of protein bars on the market that, you know, I would say are more so glorified candy bars in the sense where they have, you know, it's, it's kind of like a candy bar and they're adding protein into it. And they typically do have a lot of added sugars, pretty high in carbohydrates, but because they have the name of a protein bar, people typically think that they're pretty healthy. Um, that might not be the worst offender, but that's definitely something that I see in my practice. A lot of uh, clients are choosing a protein bar because they've heard high protein is good for their metabolism, good for weight loss, but they don't necessarily realize that it just comes loaded with sugar. But other things, you know, processed cereals, you know, that cereals that children are eating on a daily basis that are basically carbohydrate heavy already and then loaded with sugar, it's just starting out their day on a roller coaster. And people wonder why, you know, someone has an attitude or anger issues. And it can really be that it's more of a blood sugar imbalances that's causing this issue to take place. But anytime we think about a meal, starting a meal with just carbohydrates is going to lead to a fluctuation in your blood sugar. So we always want to have those meals balanced, like those carbohydrates balanced with proteins, healthy fats, and then of course, a fiber full food like those non-starchy veggies. You bring up such a good point. So my husband and I were on a coffee walk one morning and we saw all the kids getting ready to go to school. And there's this little bakery not too far from where we live. And the parents had decided to let their kids each have a maple bar before school. And my heart just, it hurt for the parents, the kids, the teachers, the teachers that are going to have to put up with that kid who maybe now has a bad attitude, can't focus, has brain fog. So I know that you're a mom of two yourself. So do you let your kids have cereal or what are some great breakfast foods for kids to start their day with? My kids don't eat cereal. I don't think that they ever actually have, but they don't really like it. But um, we typically start our day every morning with eggs and then they have these gluten-free pancakes that I make at home each week for them. Um, and then they'll also have some type of like I'll give them some of my son will have olives, which might be a weird choice for breakfast, but he does like to eat those. He's really good about eating those healthy fats or maybe a quarter of an avocado. So I like to start their day with something that has protein. I do give them some carbohydrates so that they have some you know, energy throughout the day. But I know that sometimes at school, they don't have as much time to eat a full lunch. So I want to make sure I'm fueling them before they go out the door. Plus, sometimes at school, you know, there's a birthday and someone brings in treats. And so if my kids are getting some type of sugar at school, um, which, you know, I try to control that as much as possible, but it, it happens. Um, I just want to make sure that I'm supporting their gut metabolism by making sure they're getting, you know, vegetables in when they get home from school and at dinner time, but then also making sure each meal has protein. Because personally, I have noticed in my own kids that when they have had sugar on its own, it, it definitely leads to more attitude, more irritability, more mood imbalances. So for me, it keeps a very peaceful home to make sure that everyone is focusing primarily on an optimal plate, which includes proteins, some carbs, and then getting those veggies in as well. 
I think that's a really good example because I've heard that your whole day isn't ruined just because you have one piece of pizza or you have that birthday cake in the office or at school. Completely. We like to think of it as like optimal foods and less optimal foods. Really don't want to demonize anything as being good or bad, even though we know certain foods are more drivers of health and some drivers, um, some foods are more drivers of different diseases. But if you have something that's less optimal, the best thing that you can do is choose an optimal meal the next time you eat. Because it's, it's kind of like if you're driving a car and you get a flat tire, you don't get out of the car and pop all the rest of your tires. You get out of the car and you put a spare on and you keep going. So, so many times I see clients have this kind of perfectionist mindset where if I don't do it 100% correct, there's no point in doing it at all. And that's absolutely not true. It's also one of the you know, biggest deterrents from allowing people to stay consistent. In order to be consistent in your health goals, that means understanding that you have to grant yourself grace, that sometimes you're not always going to make a decision that best serves your health. But if you make a choice to eat something that's less optimal, say, I'm choosing to do this and I'm going to choose to have an optimal meal the next time I eat and just move forward. And that's one of the ways you pull yourself off this blood sugar roller coaster. Because so many times when people eat a meal that's heavy in carbohydrates or they're eating carbs on their own, they see this surge in their blood sugar and their blood sugar spikes. And when that blood sugar goes up, it's gonna come down and it can come down quickly. So when your blood sugar drops, you can feel symptoms like irritability, angry, moody. And I'm talking about like normal symptoms in someone who you know isn't type one or type two diabetic, just like the average person. So um, typically you'll know this person because if they're irritable, you might say to them, oh, have you eaten yet today? Or are you hangry? And that's a typical sign that somebody has these blood sugar fluctuations. So when you do have that experience, the best thing to do is to go get something with protein and fiber because that's going to help fill you up. It's going to help take you off this roller coaster. But if you go and reach for something else that is also really heavy in sugar and heavy in carbohydrates, you're just going to send yourself back up this roller coaster to where you're going to come crashing down again. And the cycle is going to keep repeating itself. And when this cycle repeats itself day after day, that is when you start to see changes to your metabolic health. That is when you start to see that your hemoglobin A1C starts to go up. And that's a marker that we use to assess someone's blood sugar over the past three months. And that's when you start to get into you know, a dangerous position because things like diabetes don't develop over the course of one or two years. That's a decade in the making. There are people today who are already you know, pre-diabetic and they don't even know it. Oh, that's so scary. You mentioned diabetes and that's something that I definitely want to dive into. Will you explain insulin and how people develop type 2 diabetes? When someone eats something that contains carbohydrates, those carbohydrates are getting broken down into the smallest form called glucose. That glucose gets absorbed across our intestinal membrane and into our bloodstream. Um, from that point, that glucose can get used inside of our cells to help create energy. So that's a normal process. So when you eat foods that have carbs, you have glucose in your bloodstream, and then your pancreas is going to release insulin. 
So insulin is kind of like the key that opens the door to the cell and allows glucose to enter the cell in order to get used for energy. So in order to use glucose efficiently, you have to have optimal levels of insulin to help support moving glucose into the cell. But over time, if someone is consistently eating a diet that's really high in starches, carbohydrates, sugar, they start to develop what's called insulin resistance. And insulin resistance basically means that your pancreas is still producing insulin, but the cells are no longer listening to insulin, meaning your key doesn't work anymore. So now you have these high levels of glucose, you have these high levels of insulin because your pancreas is basically screaming. It's like, oh, I can't clear the glucose. I'm going to send out more insulin, but it can't get into the cell because it's just not functioning correctly anymore. So now we have a buildup of insulin. And I bring this up because many people do not get their insulin levels checked. And fasting insulin is, I'd say, one of the best markers that we can look at when we're looking at someone's metabolic health because your A1C is a indicator of how your blood sugar has been over the past three months, but you could have high levels of blood sugar and low levels of blood sugar that could really cause your A1C average to look pretty good. But if you have high insulin levels, then it's an indicator that insulin resistance is already starting to take place. So insulin resistance is one of the biggest drivers that leads to type 2 diabetes because once your insulin is not clearing the blood sugar efficiently, we start to see elevations in your glucose levels, which leads to an increase in your hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker that they use to assess for diabetes. So most people don't realize that they have diabetes until it's full blown because unfortunately, not everyone's paying attention to the trends. Because you want to look and see, you know, how is your A1C trending year over year? And if you're seeing it continuously increasing, then that's a, a red flag and you, you want to do something about that before you end up fully full-blown type 2 diabetes. A lot of the diet products, they're taking out sugar with the intention to lower those blood sugar levels. But some of those artificial sweeteners that they're adding in are not much more beneficial than, you know, having all that sugar in your system. So I personally recommend my clients to try to choose whole foods and minimize how many processed foods they have coming in. Even if it's zero sugar or low sugar, that's the first step is let's get whole foods into your diet. We don't want to demonize carbohydrates. Carbohydrates certainly serve a purpose, but the standard American diet is focused in on eating more processed carbohydrates. We want to bring back the carbohydrates that are coming from your sweet potato, your beets, um, like your you know whole grains if you're gluten tolerant, those type of foods. But just replacing zero calorie or zero sugar isn't always the solution. Plus, a lot of these artificial sweeteners like sucralose and aspartame, those are chemically processed sugars. Um, there is research to indicate that it does disrupt the gut microbiome. Um, and if you have imbalances in your gut microbiome, then that can influence how you regulate your blood sugar levels. The other thing to consider as well is that when you do have a lot of zero sugar or you know zero calorie foods, you're not necessarily changing your palate. The one sweetener that I do 
allow for myself and my clients that I recommend would be like stevia because that's a natural non-caloric sweetener. It is about 200 to 300 times sweeter than table sugar, but it doesn't contain calories. So that's something that they could use on occasion. Um, however, I do always recommend trying to get um, that sweetness coming from real fruits. Do you know how long it takes to change your palate and therefore your gut microbiome? You know, you can change your palate. I've seen it in as little as a week where I've had clients who we've put them on what's called a, a blood sugar reset, where I've had clients who focused in on low glycemic foods over a week to 10 day period. And by the end of that challenge, they weren't craving sugars or sweets anymore because their palate started to adjust to eating whole foods and they were more fueled off having more of those vegetables and getting their, their sweetness from fruit itself. In regards to the gut microbiome, your gut microbiome, like the cells turn over pretty quickly. So you can see positive changes in as little as two weeks of making consistent changes in your diet. But ultimately, that's also going to depend on other factors like, you know, what do your stress levels look like? How's your sleep? Do you have nutrient deficiencies that need to be corrected? Because that can all, you know, play a role as well. Where does your body store extra glucose? Yeah, so we have the glucose that's in our bloodstream, and then we have glucose that's stored as glycogen in our muscle, in our liver, and that's a stored form of glycogen that's ready for to be switched into glucose if we need it for easy energy. Now, if you have excess glucose coming into your diet or you know an excessive amount of carbohydrates coming into your diet, then that is going to get stored as fat. And what can happen if it, you know, if there's too much fat storage coming in from excess carbohydrates, those fat cells can start to accumulate in your liver, which can lead to a condition called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That doesn't sound too good. <laughs> can you dive in and explain a little bit more about what fatty liver disease is? Yeah. So basically fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the condition where fat builds up in your liver. Now you can make changes to your diet by eating a, a more optimal diet like vegetables and bringing your glucose levels down and that can improve that condition. But if it does not get improved through dietary changes, if you're not putting in that work, you it can actually progress into what's called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is what we consider, we call NASH. Um, but that basically involves inflammation of the liver. So that's when you start to have severe complications with your liver to where it's not functioning correctly. And remember, your liver is involved in your metabolism. It's involved in your glucose balance. It's involved in detoxification. So it's, it's doing a whole lot of work. So we want our liver to function correctly. But when it's not, it gets to the point where, you know, you potentially could be someone who needs a liver transplant, which not everyone is, you know, able to, to get. Now, as far as the conditions associated with like death around uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, it does progress into NASH. So it's part, it's kind of one of a disease that progresses into other conditions. And typically it's associated with other comorbidities. So someone who has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease may also have diabetes because they're having problems regulating their blood sugar. There could also be blood pressure. So it's 
I would say it's hard to say exactly how many people are dying specifically just from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. But what we do know is um, there was this meta-analysis from 2006, 2014, that estimated that the prevalence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease was about 24% of the general population. So that's a quarter of our population that they're estimating has fatty liver. And that was almost 10 years ago. So they were looking at the rates of adult obesity, the aging population, and then just you know, looking at liver disease mortality within the U.S., and they are estimating that by the year 2030, we're projected to see about a 33% of the population having fatty liver. Oh, it's just, that's so, that's one of the reasons for my podcast is to help people get access to health information like this that they maybe wouldn't find at their regular doctor's office. That's a pretty scary stat you threw out. How do we take care of the liver? How do we make sure that we don't end up with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? <laughs> yeah, I would say probably one of the best things that you can do is working on your blood sugar balance. And I think when it comes down to many conditions, that's one of the root issues that starts to affect other metabolic outcomes. Because if you can decrease how much fat is being stored in the liver, you're going to have a much healthier liver. And this is, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, of course, is related to fat buildup from, you know, not excess drinking, it's more food related, but also, of course, being mindful that alcohol is a contributing factor to extra sugar coming into the diet. And that does need to get processed through the liver as well. So being mindful about how much alcohol we're consuming, trying to keep our blood sugar levels balanced and steady throughout the day, and then making sure that we are supporting our health by getting in enough antioxidants into our diet, correcting nutrient deficiencies if we have those. You know, kind of thinking about is there a way that we can address that symptom and get things functioning optimally? Sounds like there's light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> when it comes to alcohol, is there a certain recommendation that you would provide as a guideline for someone who wants to enjoy alcohol? Yeah, I would say trying to minimize it to how many drinks you have per week would be the first thing. You know, trying to ha keep it to maybe two to three drink drinks per week at most. Um, if you're at a social event, you know, I recommend maybe having some like, sparkling water with lime or lemon in a wine glass so that you can rotate between having a drink and then staying hydrated as well. Also trying to avoid the really heavy sugar mixed drinks because those are going to have, you know, of course, alcohol and then excess sugar, which can cause some fluctuations in your blood sugar system as well. Beer, especially the darker beers, are going to be heavier in total carbohydrates. So trying to limit those definitely to the two to three week, two to three times per week would be ideal. What about fruit juices or mixing an energy drink with your alcohol of choice. What are your thoughts on that? I don't typically recommend fruit juices in general, just because they are very high in sugar and we're losing the benefit of the fiber from the fruit. So I would recommend maybe doing something like a flavored sparkling water rather than a fruit as being an alternative, you know, and energy drinks in themselves, those can be pretty high in 
caffeine. Sometimes those can be really high in sugar as well. So that definitely can have a negative effect on people from if they're caffeine sensitive, they can have more irritability, more anxiousness, and they it can impact their sleep too. Even though they're having alcohol, which many people think helps them wind down and go to sleep. It actually does disrupt how well they sleep. And then some people are slow metabolizers of caffeine. We have genetic variations where some people metabolize caffeine very quickly. Some people metabolize it very slowly. And so if you're a slow metabolizer, you're less likely to clear that caffeine and that can create problems with your sleep, your sleep patterns. It can be a whole vicious cycle. That's what I remember from being a personal trainer is my clients telling me, oh, I just like to have a glass or two of wine before I go to bed. Mm -hmm. And I would tell them, could you at least please try to have it before five in the afternoon so your body can <laughs> metabolize it? Because the way that you metabolize it is going to disrupt your sleep. So can you dive into the science on that? Yeah. So alcohol, and I would say alcohol, and I also like sugary beverages, the sugary sweets, all of those, um, having those in the evening can create more fluctuation in your blood sugar. And that can also increase stress levels. It can impact how well you sleep. So when you don't get good quality sleep at night, your body's not fully recovered. So when you're waking up the next day, you're waking up with elevations in your cortisol levels beyond the normal range. And when your cortisol is elevated from poor sleep or sugar intake or the stress of alcohol in your body, it causes dysregulation in your blood sugar. It can actually put you on that roller coaster to where you have high blood sugar and then low blood sugar because your body's in a heightened state of stress. And then the issue is that when you have poor sleep and you have these higher levels of stress, you also see changes to your satiety hormones, your hunger hormones. So now your body's more stressed. You are more hungry than normal. You're less satisfied with the foods that you're eating. And we've also seen that when you have poor sleep, your blood sugar does not respond as well to certain foods as it does on a day when you had optimal sleep. For example, let's say somebody's eating what we'd consider a healthy meal, maybe having like a salad, some chicken, some avocado, maybe some fruit on the side, and maybe they eat that meal and it's a normal day and their blood sugar levels look perfect, look normal. You have the expected rise that you would expect to see from an ideal meal like that. Now, let's say someone has poor sleep due to one of the things that we just talked about and they have that same meal the next day. I've seen a 15 point spike from the same meal on a day where someone has poor sleep or really high levels of stress. So we know that sleep and stress, they increase our insulin resistance. They, they decrease how well we respond to the same foods. So when people are using something like a continuous glucose monitor. They're paying a lot of attention to what foods they're eating, the total quantity of carbohydrates, how it's affecting their blood sugar. But what a lot of people don't always realize is that it's not just what you eat, it's how you eat. So when you're eating in a stress state, when you're eating after poor sleep, your body is not going to respond the same. So when we think about how to optimize health, it's not just about food, it's lifestyle, it's stress, it's sleep, it's the type of movement that you do. 
all of those factors are going to play a role. So when it comes down to achieving health, we have to look at the big picture because it's never just one component that's the driver of why we're having negative health outcomes. It's usually the combination of multiple factors. I imagine if you're a busy parent or a busy person on the go and you're grabbing food from a drive-through and eating it in your car and just trying to get through to your next appointment that you have to be at, that's a way to add stress. What kind of advice would you give someone to relax their parasympathetic nervous system and really dive into how they eat? What kind of tips would you give them? Yeah, that's a great, great question because we see that all the time where I I look at cortisol testing and we'll see that someone has normal levels in the morning and then their cortisol is just sky high throughout the day. And that means they are just running all day long with their sympathetic nervous system being in overdrive. Now, the sympathetic nervous system is all about fight and flight. It helps with focus and it's beneficial, but not when it's on all the time. The sympathetic nervous system needs to be balanced with your parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest and digest. So if you are eating in a stressed state, you are compromising your ability to digest your food, which can cause abdominal symptoms like bloating and heartburn and gas, and those type of factors, but it can also impact your body's ability to absorb all your nutrients because you might not actually be making enough digestive enzymes because when you're in a stressed state, your body does not prioritize digestion. So what I recommend to my clients is to first try not to eat on the go. That would be the first thing. Try to be prepared. Plan ahead so that you're not in a situation where you have to run through the drive through So you're in a situation where you could actually sit down and eat your meal. But regardless of where you are, one thing that we can all do before a meal is to take a few deep breaths. Just doing a few big inhales and exhales can be a great way to just lower your stress response before you have that meal because you really do want to be in a calm state. The other thing is that when you're eating in a stressed state, you typically eat very fast. And when you're eating fast, you're not thoroughly chewing your food. So you're not giving your body time to recognize, oh, food's coming down. We need to be prepared to digest and absorb these nutrients. So we really want to be in a low state of stress, chew your food thoroughly. I always like to say baby food-like consistency is the goal before you swallow. And that can be very hard for some people, but that's a, a really good thing to think about when you're having a meal if you want to improve your digestion. Besides that, I also do encourage a lot of my clients to take a five-minute break before their meals. So this would be a five-minute pause where they're stepping away from whatever they're doing. They're taking five minutes to themselves and engaging in meditation or going for a light walk, something that just clears their headspace so that they can really be present and mindful when they eat their meal because eating your meals should be enjoyable. You want to see like, what is the smell? What are the textures that I'm experiencing in my mouth? Visually, what does this look like? Food is meant to be enjoyed. And so often we are in such a rush that we don't necessarily give all the attention to how we're fueling our body and really appreciating that. All right, we're taking a quick break to practice gratitude as well as take a couple deep breaths. 
I hope you're learning something new in today's episode. I certainly am. Michelle is sharing some wisdom I really appreciate, including how the food industry has 61 names for sugar. If you're wanting to learn more about those 61 names, I highly recommend the book called Feeding You Lies by Vanny Harry. It came out in 2020, and it's one of my most dog-eared books when it comes to nutrition. I'll also put this in the show notes for you so you can easily find it with a hyperlink if you're listening on Spotify. We are going to discuss recipes and snack ideas later in the show, but if you can't wait, head on over to ashleydealy.com slash protein powder and use my affiliate link to purchase a grass-fed, grass-finished biodynamic protein powder directly from Amazon. It's one of my favorite on-the-go products. The unflavored option literally has one ingredient, grass-fed beef protein powder. When I moved from Australia back to America, I spent hours, literally almost half a day, researching protein powders until I finally came across one I could personally use and recommend. They also offer a clean collagen product, which I recommend and personally use as well. I wanted to remind you, not necessarily that you need reminding, but please read labels when it comes to food. Even the ones labeled gluten-free and sugar-free can still have sneaky additives. Many beef jerky companies, which is one of my favorite on-the-go snacks, a lot of companies use soy and, air quotes, natural flavors in their products. I'm sure you know natural flavors can be made up of over 300 ingredients and food companies don't have to disclose what's in them. So it's an ingredient I choose to stay away from and any product that uses natural flavors is not a product that you'll find in my home. One more time, if you're looking for a high quality protein snack, visit my website, ashleydealy.com slash protein powder, one word, and you'll find the exact brand that I use. Lastly, find me on Instagram, follow me, and tell me about the topics you're interested in. I'll do my best to bring featured guests to the show that you want to hear from and discuss ideas which are important to you, because chances are those topics are important to me as well. You can find me at Ashley underscore daily. All right, let's get back to the show. I think a lot of us can get caught up in forgetting that it's a ritual and food is meant to be celebrated. And so what I started implementing about a year ago is when I sit down with my food, I say three things that I'm grateful for before I eat. And I've also made a mindful practice to not check my phone and not have the TV on when I eat. But I really liked what you said about absorbing food or how we won't be properly absorbing food if we're eating quickly and we're stressed out. I've heard that you are what you absorb, not what you eat. So can you dive into what digestive enzymes are and why we need them? Yeah, of course. So digestive enzymes are produced um, to help break down our food. So they're going to help take our food from what you've, what we've broken down in our mouth and help it get broken down to the smallest components so it can get absorbed across our intestinal membrane into our bloodstream to get used for energy and other molecular mechanisms. So if you don't have enough digestive enzymes, 
you can see that there's undigested particles of food that are getting pushed lower into your intestinal tract. And that can create bloating, it can create gas, um, abdominal discomfort for some people. And we do see quite a few people who are in their 20s or 30s who have low digestive enzymes because they have this high state of stress. But we've also seen that people can improve it. So by lowering stress levels, by focusing on mindfulness, you can help support your digestion so that you can break down those foods and actually absorb those nutrients that are coming from the foods that you're consuming. So it definitely is important to make sure that you are supporting your digestion by chewing the food thoroughly, eating in that low stress state so that you can absorb those, those nutrients. Because if you don't absorb the nutrients that you need from your food, then you can end up with nutrient deficiencies. And nutrient deficiencies, of course, can play a role in how you feel every day. They can play a role in how you respond to the foods that you're eating, impact your mood, inflammation. So there are so many other factors, and it can all start with some simple lifestyle changes, such as trying not to be so stressed when you eat. It sounds like you look at the entire person when they come to see you. So you're not just counting those calories in, calories out, or it sounds like you're looking at their stress levels, what they're eating, what their sleep looks like. With all of these factors in mind, I'm interested in learning how does smoking, vaping, and using nicotine affect blood glucose? Smoking, vaping, any kind of nicotine products, we've seen that it does impact glucose levels. There was a study that came out in March of 2022, and they looked at e-cigarettes and they monitored for blood glucose levels. And they found that people who were vaping had a 22% increased risk of developing prediabetes compared to those who do not. So depending on how often you use it and how long you use it, it definitely can be a factor that drives blood sugar levels up. And you could be putting yourself at risk for diabetes 10 years down the road without actually realizing it. Well, vaping is something that I don't recommend anyway, but it's good, good to have that information. Something you mentioned earlier was a continuous blood glucose monitor. I've used one before, but that was just for the fun of it because I'm a biohacker. Can you explain the reason why someone would use a blood glucose monitor? Yeah. So I actually love that you've used it before. I think it's so important to be an advocate for your own health and to know your numbers. So often people think that using things like glucometers, which is where you prick your finger or a continuous glucose monitor, which is where you wear the patch on your arm and it measures your blood sugar consistently um, 24 hours a day. They think that that's just for diabetics. And really, if you're someone who's concerned about your long-term health, these are tools that you can use occasionally or even on a daily basis if you need to, to help monitor how your diet, your stress, your sleep, your lifestyle is impacting your overall metabolic health. So I have a lot of clients who do use continuous glucose monitors. Um, and what we do is we look to see what is their baseline blood sugar? What's their fasting levels in the morning? And how does that vary from day to day? What is their blood sugar doing overnight? How is what their blood sugar does overnight impact their quality of sleep and how they feel the next morning? Um, and then also looking at how is food affecting their glucose? So if you have a meal and your blood sugar has this big spike, 
then we want to work to make changes to the diet to where we can have a more balanced meal where someone has, you know, little hills and valleys versus this roller coaster that their blood sugar is on all day. And when we make these changes, what we see is that over the course of a few months, that A1C can actually come back down into a more optimal range. We start to see huge changes in their energy. I'd say energy is probably one of the first thing that improves when people stabilize their blood sugar levels and they start to see benefits in their sleep as well. So I think when using a continuous glucose monitor, it's important to recognize that this is a tool for assessing how you respond to food, but it's also a tool for assessing how you respond to stress. I actually had a client who had a lot of stress going on in her life. We had made huge changes to her diet, but she would still have these, this higher baseline. And we started implementing meditation three times per day. Just short bursts, like five minutes of meditation here, five minutes there. And every time she meditated, her blood sugar dropped 10 points. And it was just huge for her to see that stress has such a significant role. And I think people definitely underestimate how much stress plays a role because we become so used to living in a high stress state that we just think it's normal and we normalize it, but it's not, and it can really have negative effects to our health. So CGMs can definitely be used to see the big picture and how things are progressing and how you can make changes. I'm really glad you shared that story. I don't think many people are going to pair meditation with blood glucose and having better energy and sleep, but you're here to prove it. So We've talked a bit about A1C, cortisol. What are some of the top labs or some markers that you recommend your clients get done? When it comes down to blood sugar, I always want to see a fasting glucose. I want to see an A1C. Typically, a conventional doctor will pull those two metrics. And ideally, I like to see at least twice per year so we can see how things are progressing. I also like to see a fasting insulin level because fasting glucose and the A1C don't always show the, the full picture. So fasting insulin is gonna be important as well. I typically will do a full panel with someone where I'm looking at other markers of metabolic health, looking at their total cholesterol, breaking it down to their LDL, their HDL, triglycerides, oxidized LDL, inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein and homocysteine. I'm also looking at a full thyroid panel, really diving into nutrients. So things like vitamin D, looking at your omega-3 fatty acids. So that those are ones um, a conventional doctor may not be pulling, like looking at your omega-3 fatty acids, which are important for lowering total body inflammation. They're also important for cognitive health and, and blood sugar balance also. And then also other nutrient deficiencies. So is someone deficient in antioxidants? Are they deficient? in B vitamins? Are they deficient in any of the fat soluble vitamins? So digging in and finding out, are they deficient and how is that impacting their energy? What I typically find is a lot of the clients um, who work with me who come with a goal of improving energy, they typically have a lot of deficiencies in B vitamins. And it could be a consumption issue because they're not eating enough high quality proteins. It could be a digestion issue. They're eating in that stress state, or it could be an absorption issue. Like they might have dysbiosis or imbalances in their gut microbiome that's creating a lot of inflammation 
and impairing their ability to absorb nutrients. So there's multiple factors that we would need to look at, but I pretty much run a nutrient deficiency panel on all of my clients because I want to make sure that we're correcting those from the beginning because there are certain nutrients like alpha-lipoic acid and um, your B vitamins, they play a role in blood sugar balance, metabolism, CoQ10, looking at energy. So these are all factors that we need to address and correct in order for someone to feel better. And when you have high levels of blood sugar, you have these spikes going on all day, of course, it's going to affect your ability to absorb these nutrients. It's going to increase your stress, which is going to prevent you from being able to absorb nutrients as well also. So it's really about the big picture. So kind of going back to it from a conventional standpoint, get that fasting insulin in combination with the A1C and the glucose, get a full cholesterol panel, full thyroid panel each time, check your iron levels, ferritin levels, a full complete blood count that should be included anyway. But then for most people, I would say they would benefit from doing additional nutrient deficiency testing or even looking at their gut microbiome and seeing what's happening there. You mentioned some of my favorite biomarkers. I would love to know, and you don't have to name them all off because I know it will vary depending on someone's age, gender, where they are in their lifestyle and journey, but I'd love to know what some of the optimal levels are. I've heard that C-reactive protein should not be higher than one, and that's also an indicator of how quickly you're aging. And then I've heard that homocysteine should be exactly seven, not not one number lower, not one number higher. So can you dive in on some of your favorite optimal numbers? Yeah. So C-reactive protein definitely should be, you want to see that below one, because that's a marker of inflammation. Um, homocysteine, definitely want to see it below nine is what I look for. So I like to see your thyroid stimulating hormone between 1.8 and a two. In addition to just looking at that marker alone, we want to look at the free T3 and the free T4 as well. Um, and so those your doctor may not always pull unless your thyroid stimulating hormone is out of balance. If that's out of their reference range, then they'll typically pull those markers. But I would say advocate to have your doctor pull the full thyroid panel each time. So like a free T4, I typically like to see it between a one and a 1.5, and then a free T3 between a three and a four. And if your levels are not quite there, you know, things to take into consideration is that stress, again, that wonderful word of stress, but stress impacts your body's ability to really convert your free T4 into your free T3. So it's one of the factors that you have control in in optimizing your thyroid health. You have a favorite meditation app or any kind of meditation advice for someone who is new to this or hasn't really considered meditation for better energy levels and absorbing their food before? Yeah. So for the newbies, I typically recommend the Calm app. I think that's a really good app for starting with some guided meditation. You can do as easy as five minutes at a time. They also have sleep stories that you can listen to at night that help you get kind of take your mind off your own thoughts and listen to someone else's words. They also have deep breathing. So if you want to work on your deep breathing and you're not sure how to breathe or how, I mean, we all know how to breathe, but how to breathe to really activate your parasympathetic nervous system, the Calm app is a great way to do that. For people who want to dig in deeper, Ziva Meditation is another great resource. Um, the lady who created 
the program. She has a book as well as an entire course that you can go through. I've had clients take that and they found it to be very helpful. The clients who don't have time to meditate are typically the ones who need it the most. And so we do baby steps, start each morning with the deep breathing. As you get better at that, move into the meditation and then work to increase that meditation from five minutes, gradually working up to 20 minutes. I love that you mentioned the part about breathing. If someone is new to breathing before they eat and they take this big deep breath and get a big chest and pull their shoulders back, it's not quite as deep as you want it to be. So can you explain to our listeners what deep breathing should really look like? Yeah, when you have that big inhale, the whole goal is to have like a really deep inhale and a really big exhale. And so typically when you take a deep breath, you actually have the capacity to go even further. So when you take a deep breath in through your nose, if you are at the point you can't take any more air in, at that moment, take another quick deep breath of air in, and that forces you to let out a really big breath. And that gets into that really deep belly breathing. So if you try it right now, take that deep breath in. And at that point, you can't do it anymore. It's another quick, short breath. And then it just kind of helps. You feel your whole body relax when you get that huge exhale. Oh, it's such a nice reminder. I I hope all our listeners are doing the breathing while you're walking them through it. (laughs) And there are some great YouTube videos on breath work as well. So if someone doesn't want to use the Calm app, um, YouTube is a great free resource also. If someone can't afford to come see you, Michelle, what are your top two tips for managing blood glucose? So I think the biggest thing, the biggest two things I would say that everyone can do right now is one, focus in on eating the optimal plate. And how I would describe that optimal plate is that each meal, half of your plate consists of non-starchy vegetables. Within those non-starchy vegetables, we always want to try to get as much variety and as much color as possible. That way we can really increase those plant-based antioxidants. But those non-starchy veggies are going to help fill you up. So they're going to help regulate appetite, but they're also going to help give you a lot of fiber to help support your gut bacteria. The other half of your plate should consist of like a quarter coming from protein. So you want to choose good quality protein sources. You want to have protein at each meal. I recommend for most people at least 25 to 30 grams per meal. Some people might need a little bit more, some a little bit less, but that's kind of a good average. And then the other quarter of your plate could be an optional whole food carbohydrate. And I say optional because the amount of carbohydrates that someone consumes is really going to vary on their hemoglobin A1C numbers, on their glucose levels, on their exercise routine. Someone who works out more is definitely going to need a little bit more energy and support. So that's going to have some variance. But then the other metrics of the optimal plate include healthy fats. So adding in things like extra virgin olive oil, that's seeds, avocado, those are going to help with feeling satisfied. So if each meal you have has protein, some healthy fats, and at least the vegetables, it's going to help control your blood sugar to where it's balanced. It's going to help support energy. It's going to help make sure that you get all the nutrients that you need, and it's going to help with giving you fiber to support your gut. So that would be my first one. That's kind of a long-winded one, but the optimal place is my first recommendation. The second thing that I would recommend is avoid eating carbohydrates alone. 
I talked earlier about how your blood sugar can spike and can fluctuate from having too many carbs or too much sugar. But even having something like fruit, which is a great source of carbohydrates, it's a form of natural sugar, that alone can still cause spikes to your blood sugar. You can have glycemic variability. So I would recommend pairing your carbohydrates with proteins or fats to help support your blood sugar levels. So whether that's like a handful of berries with a handful, a small handful of nuts or apple and nut butter, we want to make sure that you're eating those in a way that's going to help support your metabolic markers. Because when we look at those A1C levels, you know, you want to make sure that you're keeping your A1C that 5.4 or below. So if you're trying to be healthy and you're making a fruit smoothie that has six different kinds of fruit in it and blending it up, you're saying that's not an ideal way to get your vitamins in. Yes. So if you're doing just a fruit smoothie and you have no protein and no fat, you're basically getting a lot of natural occurring sugar at one time. And so you have nothing to give you a buffer. There's no proteins, there's no fats to help slow down how quickly the sugar is absorbed. The other thing you wanna consider is when you're taking a bunch of fruit and you're blending it up and you're drinking it, you're drinking that fruit much quicker than you would be if you were eating a fruit. So if you were eating the fruit, it would slow you down as far as how quickly that sugar enters your bloodstream. But when you're drinking completely blended, that sugar is coming straight in and it's going to cause more of a spike. So two things. Yes, you want to have it with other macronutrients to balance it out. And then second, you know, I think it's fine to use fruit in a smoothie in proportion to your proteins and fats, but doing a straight fruit smoothie could be a, a glycemic disaster. I'm glad you said that. Okay, thanks. Now, <laughs> earlier you mentioned B vitamins and a few other supplements do you have any recommended supplements to live an optimal lifestyle? I'm really an advocate of personalized nutrition. So I do like to test for nutrient deficiencies before having people take a ton of supplements. But what I find in practice is that the majority of people do benefit from taking a high quality multivitamin because I see lots of deficiencies in antioxidants, lots of deficiencies in B vitamins. So I do usually recommend that to the majority of my clients. I also typically recommend magnesium. I see a lot of deficiencies in magnesium, even people who are eating a pretty whole food based diet. And magnesium is involved in over 300 enzymatic reactions. It helps with recovery, repair, sleep. So I typically do recommend my clients take magnesium at night to just help with recovery and repair. Another one that's kind of a key is omega-3 fatty acids. I do a lot of testing for that. And I find that most people are pretty deficient in omega-3 unless they're supplementing it. So of course, I'm an advocate of food first. Try to get in the wild-caught salmon, sardines, anchovies to up those omega-3 levels. But um, a supplement is kind of an, an option if someone's not eating enough of those food sources. And then another one that typically comes up is vitamin D. I mean, you always want to check your levels to make sure, but a lot of people are deficient in vitamin D, which plays a role in mood, in the metabolism, immune health, especially. So I typically do recommend vitamin D for those people as well. I've heard eating within your circadian rhythm is one of the most important things you can do for your health. So for instance, I've heard that if you had the option to choose between a Big Mac or a salad, it doesn't really matter which one you choose if you're eating it at 1030 at night. Can you explain 
the science behind this and give me your opinion? Well, my opinion would be that the salad would still be a better option than the Big Mac before you go to bed, <laughs> just because that spike from the uh, the Big Mac, the bread on the Big Mac could definitely disrupt uh, blood sugar levels. But in general, I do agree that it is best to eat within your natural circadian rhythm. So think when you, when it's light outside, your lifestyle should be mirroring what's happening with the sun. So when the sun is awake, that's when we want to be awake. That's when we should be moving, be active, eating. But when the sun goes down, your body naturally thinks that it's time to start to go into sleep and recovery mode. And a lot of the repair that your gut does happens overnight. So if you're eating late at night, you your body is it gets confused. It has to digest the food that's coming in rather than work on recovery and repair. And also it can impact your ability to get good quality sleep because now your body's working on digestion versus getting into more of a restful state. So when I have clients following a like intermittent fasting or eating within a feeding window, I do typically suggest to try to mirror that window to be you know earlier in the morning and cut off later in the evening rather than waiting to eat in the morning and then cutting off later at night. The other thing is that we're also more sensitive to insulin during the day than we are during the night. So if you eat, you know, really late at night, typically I do see increased blood sugar fluctuations in response to those foods that if they ate it in the daytime, they weren't having that negative effect. I feel like it could be an entire podcast episode, but can you walk me through the benefits, the pros and cons of fasting, both for men and women? Yeah. So a lot of their research on fasting has primarily been done on men. And so men typically do have a good response to fasting. For women, it can be a little bit more challenging. So in general, for men, if they incorporate fasting anywhere between 12 to 16 hours can be really helpful in lowering A1C, lowering blood pressure, cholesterol, helping with weight loss. They typically respond well. The, the one thing I'd say for both genders is that if you are incorporating a fast and then it's leading you to binge later, or if it's causing decreases in your energy or your performance in your workouts, then you would need to rearrange that fasting window. We want to think about that there's always research that comes out that says, oh, do this because you're going to get these results. But you have to remember nutrition is highly personalized. And just because a research article says that fasting 16 hours a day is beneficial for these different outcomes, it doesn't always mean that it applies to everybody because not everyone has the same factors going on in their life, particularly women. So with women, especially a cycling woman, they're going to have a different response to fasting. For example, in the second half of their cycle, their luteal phase, like day 14 to day 28, their parasympathetic nervous system is just down-regulated a little bit. So what that means is they don't recover quite as well. So fasting, it's a hormetic stressor. So it's beneficial. Um, it helps with, you know, slothing off cells that don't function correctly and helping to turn over cells that are functioning optimally. But if you have a lot of stressors happening at one time, it can actually not be beneficial for you. So if you're in the second half of your cycle and you're someone who typically does feel like you're more stressed, feel like you don't sleep as well, then incorporating a 16-hour fast on top of those stressors is going to make you feel a whole lot worse. Um, so that's one thing to consider where you are in your cycle. 
So people might do better fasting in the follicular phase and then trying to ease off during the luteal. Then you also have to take into consideration workouts. So if someone is working out in the morning and they're, you know, they're doing high intensity or they're doing heavy weight training and they're doing it all fasted, they may not have enough energy to perform as well as they would like. And if their performance is impacted, they're not going to have the same level of muscle synthesis. They're not going to get the body composition results that they want. So they maybe actually be better breaking the fast earlier. We also have to look at stress. If someone is really, really stressed, then fasting might not be the best option because they already have additional stressors. So there's so many factors that go into it. Um, in general, I do believe that fasting is very beneficial, but how often someone fasts, when they fast, how they fast, that is highly individual based on other lifestyle factors. And the best way to know what works best for you is to just try something and pay attention to your symptoms. If you try a 14 hour fast and you're hungry and you're miserable, then maybe start with a 12 hour fast. See how you feel and then you can push it to a 13 and then push it to a 14 and gradually work into it. But if it doesn't feel right for your body, then be comfortable adjusting. Just because the research says one thing doesn't mean it's always the right solution for each person. You brought up so many good examples. And I remember during the middle of the pandemic when grocery stores were barren, I was like, no big deal. I'll just fast. That makes sense, right? I'll just fast. <laughs> and then I saw one of my favorite biohackers in this space telling his audience, don't fast if you're already stressed out because it's another level of stress. So I was like, oh no, now I can't fast during this <laughs> pandemic. So, so I like what you said to just listen to yourself. And I mean, I did end up listening to myself, but those are really good examples. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Sometimes more is not always better. Sometimes we have to rein it back in and there's other times where we can kind of just go full out. <laughs> So what would be some of your go-to snacks for people who are on the go, but still trying to be mindful about what they eat? I always like to have snacks with me if I'm traveling or if I know I'm not going to be able to get to a meal right away. I typically like to take like a protein shake that I've already blended ahead of time. That way I have protein powder that's mixed into it. I have a little bit of fruit for sweetness. I have vegetables. I typically put in one to two cups of veggies into my smoothie, whether it's like cauliflower rice, broccoli rice, leafy greens, and I'll blend that ahead of time and then just take it with me. Put it in like one of those little Yeti containers that keeps it cold or any other kind of you know, cold beverage holder. And that's a great resource. Other things that are more shelf stable, beef jerky sticks like Chomps is a grass fed beef jerky stick. Paleo Valley has some as well. Those are really good options. I always get like dry roasted nuts and seeds that are in the individual packets and take those with me. So I have some healthy fat or even the individual packets of olives. So when you think about what you're taking with you for a snack, try to prioritize things that are like proteins um, or even like proteins or fats or veggies, things that can be paired. And if you have a piece of fruit, that, that works too. Do you just want to pair it with something like a grass-fed beef stick or the nuts and seeds just so that you don't have that rise in your blood sugar? If you're looking for more snack ideas, we actually have recipes on our website. It's beingfunctionalnutrition.com. There's a bunch of recipes and we like to test our recipes on a continuous glucose monitor to assess how much they affect your blood sugar. 
because we like to recommend foods and meals that are going to help people reach optimal health. So if you're looking for some more resources, you can check those out and those are all free resources available to anybody. Oh, that's so great. We'll make sure that we link to all of those in the show notes. Michelle, what haven't I asked you that you'd like my listeners to know? I think the biggest thing that I want people to know is that you have to be your own health advocate. So when it comes to improving your health, to maintaining your health, don't rely on your doctor or someone else to do it for you. You need to demand what labs you want to have run, and you need a doctor who's going to listen to you. If your doctor is not listening to you, find somebody else who will, because knowing your labs is key in helping to prevent conditions that you don't even know could be in your future. So plan ahead now so that you can have a long, healthy life. And the last thing would be listening to your body, right? You know your body better than anybody. But if you're having a lot of symptoms and you don't know why, it's most likely that you've just lost the connection between what your body is trying to communicate to you. I would recommend everyone to, at some point in their life, use a food symptom journal to where they're writing down what they're eating, write down their mood, their energy, their bowel movements, their sleep patterns, just for a week. And then review it and see if you can start to put the pieces of the puzzle together because no one knows your body better than you. And if you take the time to listen, you'll start to realize what it's trying to communicate and realize that you and your body are one and you're working together towards the same goal. That's so helpful. You wrapped it up so beautifully. Where can listeners go to find more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, on our website, beingfunctionalnutrition.com, we have a team of functional medicine dietitians and different programs that we offer. So we have group programs available in our My Food is Health program, and then we do work one-on-one with clients. And then for anyone who is really interested in supporting their blood sugar levels, we do have a blood sugar reset that is coming up in November. That's a 10-day program where we have 10 days of recipes, breakfast, lunch, and dinner that are all provided with meal prep guide, like recommendations and guidelines to help people get started. There's a private Facebook group, and then we do have Facebook Live and Zoom Live recordings with all of our dietitians where people can actually join and ask questions, and we provide more educational content every day of the 10-day reset. So if you are ready to change your life to feel better, I would encourage you to sign up for that. And that is coming this fall, but you can get more information about it at beingfunctionalnutrition.com. Sounds like a wealth of information. We'll make sure that we have everything in the show notes so listeners know where to find you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michelle. Thank you so much, Ashley. It's been my pleasure. This podcast is presented for educational and exploratory purposes only. Published content is not intended to be used for diagnosing or treating any illnesses, disease, or disorders. Those responsible for this show disclaim any responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of this information presented by myself or my guests. Please consult with your healthcare provider before using any products or services referenced in this podcast. This podcast may contain paid endorsements for products or services. Any third-party materials or content of any third-party site reference on this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of standards or the policy of my guests. This podcast and my website, ashleydaily.com, represent the opinions of myself 
The content discussed on the show should not and does not replace medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Episodes on Welcome to Wellness may at times cover sensitive topics, including, but not limited to, depression, suicide, COVID-19, vaccines, events related to the pandemic, 5G, big pharma, nootropics, circumcision, psychedelics, hormones, the Women's Health Initiative, birth control, the use of plants medicine, abortion, geoengineering, terrorism, gender, AI, and sex drugs and rock and roll. You are advised to refrain from listening to this podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. However, if these topics are of interest to you, you just may have found your tribe. The information or opinions expressed on the Welcome to Wellness show are solely the views of the individuals involved by no means represent absolute facts. Opinions expressed by the host and the guests can change at any time. The views of my guests are solely their views and the Welcome to Wellness show does not accept responsibility for them. And any action you take on the information contained within the show is strictly at your own risk. The Welcome to Wellness host, Ashley Dealey, will not be liable for any losses or damages in connection with the use of this podcast. You should take all necessary steps to ascertain the information you receive from this podcast is correct and has been verified. None of the guests or contributors on the Welcome to Wellness podcast will be responsible for your use of the information contained therein. Under no circumstances will the Welcome to Wellness show or my affiliates, partners, suppliers, licenses, or guests appearing on this show be liable for any direct or indirect or consequential damage arising from your use of or inability to access this podcast. All intellectual property rights belong to Ashley Dealey, included but not limited to the copyright and any other rights in the design. You are permitted to use the Welcome to Wellness podcast for personal use, but not for commercial use without license. You may not make any recordings of or otherwise copy this podcast. If you breach these terms, you lose the right to access the Welcome to Wellness podcast and you must destroy or return any copies of the recordings you have made. Guests on the Welcome to Wellness podcast may at times provide information on or read extracts from third parties' copyrighted work. The Welcome to Wellness podcast does not provide any medical or professional advice within these episodes. Anything said should not be taken as replacement for medical, clinical, professional advice, diagnosis, or medical intervention. If you take any action or inaction as a result from the content you consume from the Welcome to Wellness podcast, this is based solely on your decision and the Welcome to Wellness podcast and Ashley Dealey and my guests cannot be held liable for any of the consequences of such action or inaction. Thank you.